America had a party on the 4th of July, and COVID-19 was the uninvited guest. New government data show that Black and Latinx Americans are suffering COVID-19 at nearly three times the rate as white Americans. And officials are comparing the COVID-19 surge in Houston to New York City surge in April. Oh, and Kanye West says he's running for president. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And yes, we are officially living in the weirdest timeline. This weekend, America celebrated her 244th birthday. On July 4th, 1776, our country declared its independence from Great Britain, setting forth a new country upon lofty ideals. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. First, that should really read people. And wow, have we struggled to meet those ideals. Americans of all stripes recognize that inequities in our country have to end. It's why, according to a survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation, 10% of Americans participated in a Black Lives Matter protest, and 64% say they supported the protests. And yet, if we're serious about our ideals, reform has to keep going. Building on rethinking policing and ending mass incarceration, we have to rethink every single aspect of our society that systematically excludes people of color, and particularly black people. Just this week, an analysis of CDC data found that Black and Latinx Americans are bearing the brunt of COVID-19. Not only do people of color suffer more COVID-19, but they're more likely to die in every single age group and across rural, suburban, and urban communities. But those data are only through the end of May. They don't include the most recent surges in California, Texas, Florida, Arizona, and other states with substantial communities of color. Which gets to the other part of our lofty ideals. We set forth on an experiment, which Lincoln called a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The idea was that people didn't need despots and dictators, or monarchs and their magistrates, to tell them what to do. That people could come together and act together in their own best interests. I believe deeply in democracy. They say you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And as a kid, I spent many summers in my parents' native Egypt, where democracy simply isn't a thing. I learned enough those summers both to appreciate how profound a democracy is, and how delicate it can be. Democracy only works, though, when we, the people, make thoughtful, reasoned decisions, and when we invest in the public good, in each other. COVID-19 has challenged us directly in both these ways, and right now, if I'm honest, we're failing. First, when the people are entrusted to make decisions on their own, it means they have to be accountable to reason and fact. And well, you preach pseudoscience and safety. Does anyone care about preserving the liberty of the people who pay your salaries? You're not God, and since masks are harmful, where there is risk, there should be choice. You're removing our freedoms and stomping on our con constitutional rights by these communist dictatorship orders or laws you want to mandate. You cannot mandate, you literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a mask knowing that that mask is killing people. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci. One of the problems we face in the United States is that, unfortunately, there is a combination of an anti-science bias that people are, for reasons that sometimes are, you know, inconceivable and not understandable, they just don't believe science and they don't believe authority. Second, we have to invest in each other. That means doing this for the greater good. It's the idea behind wearing a mask when you go to a grocery store, or maybe not hanging out in a crowded bar. 
and it means supporting politicians who care about the greater good in the first place. As a Muslim American child of immigrants, you can imagine that I've been told by enough people enough times that their definition of America doesn't include me. It's why I've been told to go home so many times, even though home is Michigan. But I think they don't understand America. America is not simply a place or a people. That's not the America that inspired my parents and so many like them to come here. It's those ideals. And though we may not yet live up to them, America is in the effort we put in doing so. It's in working to make those truths self-evident, that all people are created equal. It's in learning and thinking and reasoning about what's best for our country and one another. It's in giving of ourselves for the people in our communities, even if that means wearing a pesky mask in the hot July sun or watching the fireworks from home this year. America is its ideals and the work we do in reaching them. And right now, COVID-19 is giving us an opportunity to be just a bit more American. Yet, right now, we're missing the mark. Part of that is because we've simply failed to invest in the kind of public goods we need. One of them is contact tracing. See, there was a world where we came out of lockdown and never had to go back there or worry about what might happen if we didn't. In that world, we would have built a coronavirus containment core, a massive force of contact tracers who helped to contain the virus from spreading among us. One of the lead sponsors of that idea, along with Senator Elizabeth Warren, is Congressman Andy Levin of Michigan. My guest today is Representative Andy Levin from my home state of Michigan, and we're really excited to have him because he has been a leader in the effort to attract federal funding for contact tracing, which we see, especially right now, as being fundamental and critical to being able to finally contain this pandemic. But, you know, it looks like we're, it's definite that we're moving in the wrong direction here. And Congressman, before uh, we jump in uh, into your bill, talk a little bit more about contact tracing. Tell me what you make of this moment and what it tells us about, frankly, us and about how we've approached this pandemic that we're now seeing bikes across the country, you know, in, in, in some of the, the biggest and, and most populous states in our country. Well, I mean, you know, Abdul, it's so sad, and, but it's not really surprising, you know, when you consider the lack of leadership from the Trump administration. I mean, we have a president who's politicized something as simple and effective as wearing a mask and who has zero interest in standing up the kind of response we need. So, you know, I, I'm sad to say it's, it's not surprising. I mean, if you look at contact tracing, right, Dr. Fauci said last week that contact tracing is going poorly. Why? Because we're doing it with one hand tied behind our backs, you know? So I just think that... Uh, from the beginning, Donald J. Trump has not said, whoa, I'm the president of the United States, the president of everybody. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to use the Defense Production Act to its full powers, procure everything about testing, personal protective equipment and treatment. I'm going to, if we can't buy it, we're going to make it and we're going to buy, pay companies fairly and pay workers fairly to make it. And they'll want to do it, and they'll never forget that they stepped up in this time and did it. And then we're going to deploy it as it's needed. Instead, he's been petty and just only about himself. And I don't know. I think this is going to go down as probably the biggest failure of being the executive, you know, the executive function in the modern history of the presidency on any yeah. issue. So it's yeah. really a sad time. And in some respects, we shouldn't have to be talking about contact tracing 
four plus months into this pandemic. That should have been day one investment. Can you tell us a little bit about the state of contact tracing uh, in America right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC, said recently that we have 27 or 28,000 contact tracers when he estimates we need 100,000. And others have said we need 200 to 300,000. I mean, we have public health departments that are underfunded. Uh, We have communities that after decades of discrimination are understandably wary of trusting health authorities. So, you know, I heard Ron Klain, who was President Obama's Ebola czar, say recently on Pod Save America that we need to test extensively and we need to match that with contact tracing. And there's literally zero federal contact tracing program. So that's where we are today. I mean, it's pathetic. And you're right. It should have been January. I mean, when was he getting this in his intelligence briefings? I mean, you know, if he was responsible, he would have said, okay, let's go. You know, we we need to set this up. And he still says the buck stops anywhere but me. So so tell me a little bit about what uh, your bill would do and how it would address our current lack of contact tracing. Well, so to be honest with you, you know, there's all 435 of us in the in the House of Representatives and 100 senators, right? So you kind of, anyway, the way I look at it is, well, what's my contribution? You know, and I'm out of those 535 people, I'm the one who used to run a state workforce system. So I said, well, let me work on the workforce part of this whole thing of testing, mm-hmm. tracing, and supported isolation, which is, you know, the workers to do mostly contact tracing. So it's called the Coronavirus Containment Corps Act. And my main partner in the Senate is is Elizabeth Warren. And it's really, it's a health imperative, but it's also a plan to put Americans back to work. It would provide funds to health departments through the CDC, but to local health departments to hire, (laughs) train, and deploy investigators, contact tracers, and social support specialists. And it would coordinate with workforce agencies in every community to connect unemployed people from those communities to contact tracing employment opportunities and then long-term careers after the pandemic. The key thing, I think, is that it makes clear that we need to hire contact tracers from the communities in which they'll work and that they need to reflect the full diversity of those communities, speak the languages of those communities. Otherwise, I don't, I mean, you're more of an expert in this than me, but I don't see how we build trust if we don't, you know, hire people, uh, you know, from the communities. And there's plenty of unemployed people in every community right now. I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing, right? Is that, is that you've got unemployment through the roof. Uh, one in four Americans is not currently working. And we know that we need uh, hundreds of thousands of people to be able to do this uh, critical work. And four and a half months into the pandemic, we still haven't built that contact tracing force up. And here we are with a second major surge uh, in the virus. And in fact, we've got rates of transmission that are higher than they were in, in the first surge. And it seems to me like an obvious thing to do. I'm wondering, uh, from your perspective, uh, Congressman, what is the holdup? Why uh, hasn't there been massive bipartisan support for your bill to put Americans to work to address the pandemic? You know, I, I think that 
this person in the White House and a lot of other people perceive this as like, well, you can choose between these public health nerds and the people who want a strong economy. <laughs> and I think it's just 100% wrong. I think until we do this, and uh, you know, public health, this work is the tip of the spear of having a strong economy. And, you know, I mean, I think the president learned this a little bit the hard way when he saw those empty seats at his rally. I mean, people shouldn't, hopefully won't put themselves into large group situations if they don't feel safe. And so this goes for so much of the economy, amusement parks, theaters. Our, you know, our governor just announced that she's closing restaurants uh, or bars, indoor bars again in the southern part of the state because you know, until we're doing this, this testing and tracing, we're not going to be able to reopen the economy. And the thing is, it's what you said earlier. If a vision of this is so patriotic and beautiful. So, okay, we, we find someone who has, is, has symptoms. We do, we do the investigation. Who's everybody who you were with? We find their coworkers or whoever it is that they were with, the people at a party, whatever it is. The workers go make contact with them. They say, you need to isolate. Oh, that person has four roommates or their family, you know, is too big to isolate safely or to quarantine at home. Okay, well, let's open some hotels to house these people, right? They have to eat. Let's open some restaurants to feed them, right? I mean, this can not only lead to some hundreds of thousands of jobs of the contact tracers, investigators, but the whole... and. Abdul, everybody who participates in this will never forget it, right? They will have helped bring our country through the biggest public health crisis in a century. So I don't understand. This is so far beyond partisanship. It's really sad that it got to be that way. It's one of the the points that you brought up, which is, you know, the president and his allies approach to the pandemic has been to ignore it, to claim victory over it, and then to politicize it so deeply that they're equating things like wearing masks with liberty and freedom. The the governor of um, South Dakota just said that you know they will not be socially distancing at um, their celebration of Mount Rushmore, which it just it's almost like there is this this need to show almost this machismo about doing very risky things um, that not only put yourself at harm's way. But affect your entire community, and this is, I think, where where my frustration has been. Right there, there's sort of this uh, this parallel conversation in in public health about motorcycle law, uh, helmet laws, and folks said, "Well, look, you know, if I want to take my risk in my own hands, I don't, I shouldn't have to wear a helmet because the government tells me to, because it's my life and I'm taking it in my own hands." And that's that's fair. I disagree with that, right? Because I think all of society suffers when bad things happen to people. But even then, right, that's fair. That's your life, right? And and you can choose what to do with your life. But in this case, it's not just just your life. It's everybody else who is uh, potentially impacted by you becoming a vector uh, for this extremely deadly and extremely infectious disease. And so without the ability to like take this thing really on, I don't really know where we go from here. I don't know what the end game is, except for we suffer hundreds of thousands of more deaths and potentially millions of more infections. So, you know, I believe that what you're focusing on and the point that you're making is mission critical uh, for us being able to take this thing on. Is there any hope for getting 
you know, members on the other side or or the Senate to take this up is uh, do you think the, the partisanship and the politicization is just too far gone? Or do you feel like if we start seeing real spikes in uh, traditionally red parts of the country and people start seeing, you know, their loved ones and potentially themselves getting sick, uh, that this might change? Or um, are we just doomed to this? Well, I think that it, <laughs> I think the Senate is going to have to take up a next response bill. You know, we, we got a significant part of the Coronavirus Containment Court or the CCC Act. You know, we purposely named it after the Civilian Conservation Corps to reflect the urgency and the patriotism and the sort of jobs aspect of this. But this is significant parts of it are in the HEROES Act, which we passed like seven weeks ago in the House. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, there's, there's so many things in the HEROES Act, you know, next payments to direct payments to families, extension of unemployment benefits, aid to states, counties, cities and townships, um, including immigrants finally in this. And so there, the Senate's going to respond I think they will, in a partisan way, reject some things. Like they're they're done with six hundred dollars extra a week. You know, they're they're so embarrassed that their model of capitalism has people making more at home, you know, than they do at work because they underpay people. So, but your, your here's what your question raises: Will they agree to include in whatever they do the core public health response that is? the sine qua non of our ability to get out of this or not. And I don't know the answer to it, but I'm hopeful that they, anyway, that's what I'm doing, working so hard on is to try to get them to do it. But you know what? I can't tell you, Doc, that I've got a lot of Republican support so far. I mean, just being honest with you. So Congress passed the, the, or the House passed the the HEROES Act, and you you seem somewhat optimistic that we're going to have another bite at the apple in terms of COVID-19 response, and I sure hope you're right. Beyond contact tracing, what else would you like to see in there? Well, we, I mean, there's so much in in the uh, HEROES Act that is important, uh, and I'm really frustrated by the press not covering it, so I'm really, I really appreciate that you raise this. I mean, there, there's payroll protection measures in the HEROES Act for 60 million workers connected with their jobs. There's extra pay for uh, essential workers in the HEROES Act, I think is critical. There's $500 billion for the states and $375 billion for state and local government, for counties and cities. If you want to help make sure there's any kind of justice in K-12 education, any kind of opportunity, help with the state budgets. Michigan would get over $7 billion in 2020 and over $6 billion in 2021. It's more than the budget hole so far for Michigan. It would save funding for, you know, we could protect from even more damage. So Mm -hmm. there is so much that needs to be, you know, that needs to stay in there. And there's also a lot of racial justice aspects to it that I, I hope we can keep. Can, can I just mention that? I mean, you have, you have people who listen to this podcast all over the country, but just take my own two counties that I represent as an example. Macomb and Oakland counties, inner suburbs of Detroit, people I think know that the metro Detroit area was hard hit. But in mm-hmm. Macomb County, black people make up 
over 25% of the cases and 20% of the deaths, mm. even though they're only 12% of the population. Mm. And in mm -hmm. Oakland, these are the suburbs, friends. In Oakland County, the numbers are even worse. Black people make up over 30% of the cases and 36% of the deaths, while they're only 14% of the population. Mm -hmm. So this is exposing systemic racism in our country, in health delivery, in you know people with pre-existing conditions, in access to health care, and you know, we need to move on all these fronts. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. I think as we think about the next tranche of COVID legislation building off of heroes, we can't forget that this is a unique moment into which we have to sow anti-racist policies into everything we do in COVID-19. You know, the virus is not racist, but society is. And um, the consequences of that racism are what have created those disparate outcomes that you just mentioned, just in Oakland and Macomb counties. I uh, I, I deeply appreciate uh, your your leadership on this issue, and, and grateful uh, that you would take the time to to share with us. You know, just just asking, um, you know, for the listeners, what's it like being a congressperson in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, you know, so I, personally, I. Like I'm going to get in the car tomorrow and drive home from, I'm in, in my office right now in DC. I'm going to drive home to Michigan by myself because I've got two kids with Crohn's disease and an 88 year old dad. And you know, my, that's how, what we feel like I need to do to keep them safe. But on a broader level, Abdul, we have a chance right now to turn this country towards justice. This November 3rd can be the biggest inflection point. I hope that, November, that what pe when people look back at this election, they don't, what they see is 1964, mm -hmm. a, a deep repudiation of a vision of society that doesn't include justice for everybody, and that we, we've got to move so quickly on climate change to save life on Earth as we know it on this planet and on these injustices that uh, afflict people of color and immigrants every day. We have a chance right now to launch into a new era in January 2021. And I think we can do it, but we have to reach everybody, you know, and, and help everybody feel heard. Joe Biden has to reach everybody, make them feel heard. We've got to do that in places like Macomb County and Oakland County and places like Detroit. Um, so right now, as a, as a member of Congress, I mean, look, this first term, we had the longest government shutdown ever. We had being the bulwark, the, the majority in House to be the bulwark against Trump. We had the impeachment, COVID-19, and now a little bit of awakening, at least, about police, you know, violence uh, against, uh, against Black men in particular and people of color in general. It's been an astounding ride. But... We have to grab the moment and have a huge repudiation, not just of Trump, but of the 50 years of using racism for politics that the Republican Party has engaged in from Nixon's mm -hmm. Southern strategy to Willie Horton ads to, you know, right up to Donald Trump retweeting white power. Mm hmm. Well, we appreciate you and thank you for uh, your leadership and, and uh, your focus on 
uh, how we contain uh, COVID-19 and build a contact tracing army to do it. So thank you for joining us and uh, really, really appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thanks, my brother. Thank you so much for your leadership. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Cases are rising in 39 states nationwide, up 84% over the last two weeks. It's not that we're in a second wave. It's that the first wave never ended. And that's not because we're doing more testing, because more of those tests are coming back positive. It's because it's spreading faster among us. And it's only a matter of time until those cases end in hospitalizations and end in death. Governors in hardest hit states are reinstating social distancing measures. But will they go far enough? And will they take effect in time? And how will Americans respond to these surges? Will we put on masks and avoid crowded places? If viral videos of July 4th celebrations are any indication, we've got a long way to go. Next week, we'll have a very special guest, someone who's been working diligently to educate us about the risks of COVID-19. Dr. Anthony Fauci will be joining us on America Dissected next week. If you have a question for Dr. Fauci or just want to send him a message, email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com. If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takiya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.